0: Hello and welcome to I'm Not Doing This Without Alcohol. My name's Denise Ferguson from Fine Surveyors and today I'm here with Dean Fox. Hi Dean, how are you?
1: I'm very good. Thanks for having me, Denise.
0: No, it's lovely to have you. So, for the second time this year, I've actually got a glass of red wine. So, Dean, what are you drinking? Uh,
1: I'm, I'm drinking um, a non-alcoholic beer. I haven't, had a drink, I haven't had a drink for over 12 months. So,
0: Oh, wow. Tell me...
1: Tell me more. Why haven't you had a drink for over 12 months? It, it wasn't a, uh, I didn't do it as any sort of major decision in my life or anything like that. It was that the last drink I had was just before lockdown um, in March last year. And then I just kind of never really, I never really fancied one for a while. And then the longer it went on, the more I was like, I don't really miss it that much, to be fair. And uh, so I don't have a hard one. So it's not, it's become a, a thing, you know. People keep saying, oh, "Are you going to share?" Tell people that you haven't had a drink for twelve months. And I'm like, "No, not really. No, it wasn't. It wasn't an intentional thing. Um, just kind of happened." And uh,
0: yeah, exactly the same thing happened to me. um Everyone always says, "In January, I'm doing dry January, do dry January." And I never do. I always say, "I'll do mildly moist January." Okay. Like I'm not giving up anything because it's not good. Because I just think it's too much pressure, and then. Um, and I did the whole of January, like not a problem, didn't think about it at all. And then it got to the end of January and I was like, why even bother now? So maybe on a Friday or a Saturday night, I'll have a glass of wine or something, but I just, I just don't like you, just don't really miss it now. I quite like waking up in the morning feeling all naturally grumpy and not grumpy because of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Dean, what is your business called and what do you do?
1: Uh, so it's uh, uh, ingenuously called Dean Fox Coaching. Um, but essentially I'm a, I'm a performance coach. So I help business owners and entrepreneurs improve their performance mainly by working on uh, their mindset and, um, the issues around the things that they believe about themselves that are not in essence true, but prevent them from achieving the things that they'd like to achieve and taking the actions that they'd like to, uh, uh to take in order to get the results that they want. So I work mainly on, um, what I call the four biggest issues that most business owners and entrepreneurs face, which are um, things like procrastination, perfectionism, fear of public speaking, fear of rejection. And um, each of those is a behavior pattern in itself. And when you understand the truth about what that means and how it looks, then you can overcome it in a, uh, in a very easily way, but, but permanently, most people do it on the basis of trying to do it in short term strategies. So they'll, you know, they'll take something on board and say, well, I'm going to implement this for the next three weeks, six months. But because they don't actually um, end the behavior pattern, then it repeats again in the future. And so they wonder why they fall back to doing the same things again, six months later or 12 months later. So I end up working with people who are looking to make a permanent change rather than a a short-term strategy or um, technique, if you like.
0: Yeah, as you were speaking, I was like nodding and then shaking my head because I totally understand the whole, the whole behavioural and, and and needing to work on things. But things like public speaking um, just doesn't phase me at all. And loads of people naturally say it's because I'm an extrovert it's because I'm really confident. Actually, I'm, I'm really not. I'm very much one of those introvert, extrovert people that I can be really extrovert. I need to make myself be that extrovert, but then I'll have to then hide in a corner and, and re-energize. So it's, just, it's not a natural thing for me at all. But I just don't have that worry about speaking in public. So for me to kind of understand other people's fears, I, I really struggle with that. So how do you work with people that that have that that inbuilt you know terror of, of naturally speaking in public
1: so things like each of those is is a behavior pattern in itself and the problem for most people the first problem always is that um, we we internalize the problem it becomes an identity so the number of times I hear people say "Oh it's just me I'm a born procrastinator or you know'm I'll never be good at." public speaking. I've, I've never been good at it. Um, and so we we internalise it. It becomes our identity. It's who we are. And then because of that, it becomes really difficult to change in most people's view because who can change their identity, right? <laughs> you know, that's set in stone. Um, and so that's why we, we struggle with it. But essentially each pattern of behaviour, so fe- let's take fear of public speaking, that pattern of behaviour, is built on a um, a set of beliefs, a set of blocks, if you like. Um, and I, I developed this concept called the Jenga concept to help people understand what I mean. Interesting. So I have—you know, you probably can't see it—but on the behind me on the uh, on the unit there, there's a Jenga. I can tower. see Jenga. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the idea behind it is that if you imagine the Jenga tower being a pattern of behaviour, the tower is built on a series of blocks as is a pattern of behavior. It's just that a pattern of behavior, those blocks are mindset blocks, things that we believe about ourselves, things we've been conditioned to believe. In the same way in a Jenga tower, if you take some blocks away from the Jenga tower, it becomes unstable, but doesn't necessarily collapse. And that's what happens when we start to to do some short-term strategies or some work on ourselves or we attend a motivational event or we read a book on public speaking, for example, and we start to make, implement some changes. It's like taking some of the blocks out. So the tower becomes unstable, but it doesn't collapse. So in three months or six months time, you're still going to have that pattern of behavior repeating again, because the tower never went away. It's still there. So in order to collapse the tower, you need to take all the blocks away. In order to do that, you know what, you need to know what they are. That's the first thing. So I spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand and working with clients to work out exactly what the blocks are that support a particular tower, a pattern of behavior. But what I also realized from that concept is that there's about five or six blocks in any Jenga tower that if you push them out, the whole tower collapses anyway. You don't need to move them all. And so I wondered if that was the same for individuals, was, you know, is there five or six blocks that if we could move those, that the pattern would collapse and we could get them to take action or eliminate their fear quicker the answer to that is there are but it's it's unique to each individual person so it's like um, it's like breaking into the safe everybody's got their own unique combination so there might be you know 19 um, individual blocks and four conditionings that support a particular pattern of behavior but you might only be affected by eight of them but every person's affected by a different combination of them. Um, so it's understanding, first of all, what they all are and then what the individual's unique combination is and then working with them to eliminate those blocks. So we collapse the tower and then they're free to uh, from that pattern of behaviour ever repeating again.
0: What on earth got you into this business?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question because it, it was n- never, ever an intentional plan to do what I do now.
0: But you um, love it though? Absolutely. Because I can see that and I can always see that because I interview so many people. I can always tell who loves their business and I, and I can see it's a quiet but deep passion that you have with this business. Yeah. I can't tell where the hell it came from. So that is why it spilled out of me the minute you, you stopped speaking. Where did this come from?
1: So what uh, there's two things? The first thing is that I heard something the other day. Um, another speaker was talking and they talked about, um, you know, career and purpose and things like that. Uh, and they said, career is what we're paid for and purpose is what we're made for, um, which I agree with entirely. But I also think that we, we don't find a purpose. I believe a purpose finds us. Um, and I think it's evolving. Be, yeah. You just have to yep. be open when it does, uh, you know, when it comes along. I
0: don't think it settles either, though.
1: No. I don't think, No. It continues to grow and develop yeah. and it takes you down different pathways until you eventually end up, in my words, being who you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to do. That, that's what yeah. it was. Uh, but my journey to this point, it, it was I never had an intentional plan. I went off in the same direction most people did, um, you know, left school, went to college, left college, went into the corporate world, um, went in as an engineer, did reasonably well, As an engineer, but never really felt like that's what I should be doing. So I left the technical side. I went into the commercial side. Went into sales and business development. Um, Loved it. um, Did really well. Um, You know, finished my corporate career, if you like, um, as a national sales manager for a company in the UK. I ran a sales team. Um, You know, had expense accounts and company cars and. So on the outside, everyone was like, oh, you know, Dean's got a really successful careers and really well in, in, uh, in sales. But again, it, I never, ever felt like that. I still didn't feel like I was doing what I was supposed to do. And I developed what I call a, a when-then mentality. So I kept saying, well, you know, when I've done this, when I achieve this, when I drive this car, when we live here, when I earn this much money, then... I'll feel happy or then I'll feel successful or um, and I just kept, it was just a, a, a treadmill of you know next every time I achieved something that I'd set out to do I'd say, oh when I've done this then I'll feel I'll feel good enough I'll feel uh, I'll feel happy. I'd get there I'd achieve it and then I wouldn't feel like that and I'd suddenly think, okay well maybe it's not that then maybe I need something else to do And so in the early 2000s um, having got to that point in my career, I said, my next when then was if I could do this for myself. So if I left the corporate world and I went into business for myself, then I would, um, and and I was successful, then I'd prove to myself that I was good enough and successful. And and then I'd feel like that. So that's what happened. I left the corporate world. My wife and I set up a business together in property. So we were in investment and development in the early 2000s. My world. And we grew that business um, up to... 2007, multi-six figures, Um, you know, we were doing reasonably well. We had our eyes on, you know, long-term ambitions of what we were going to do with it. And then 2008 happened. And, um, you know, in all of the strategies, all of the things that we were used to doing ended overnight. Um, You know, none of those were available when we opened the doors the next morning. And over the course of the back end of 2008 and through 2009, you know, it was just a, a disaster. Um, we ended up losing that business um, uh, in, across the course of that year. That in itself, uh, it put some financial pressure on us. Um, you know, we, we still had a lot of our own um, properties, but also our own money invested in that business as well. Um, so we lost a lot of that. So we had financial pressure, but also had a lot of those things that I talked about earlier, that when then stuff, that some of that self-doubt started to creep back in, you know, maybe this is my fault. Maybe it's, I was never meant to do this. Maybe I'm not good enough to be doing this, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then in the at the end of 2009, early part of 2010, after a conversation between my wife and I, I'd said, look, I think the way to see this out, if you like, to, um, to ride the storm is I'll just go back into the corporate world. I'll get a job um it um may not be at the level we were at before but it'll pay the bills and it'll keep us afloat so that was the decision that i made that that's what we were going to do and i started to reach out to some contacts that i had to start to say look i'm i'm looking for something but in march of that year in march 2010 uh my wife myself and my younger son were involved in a car accident um a fairly serious one so the the, the road that we were on when the accident happened it was closed for 5 hours um, it took two and a half hours to cut us out of the vehicle. Um, my son was airlifted to hospital, um, I wow. was going to lose his legs. Um, so it was fairly serious. Um, Sounds it. and we were, uh, you know, hospitalized for between two and five weeks between the three of us, depending on what needed to be done. Um, and, uh, another kind of six or seven months of physical recovery after that, which put paid to my idea of going back into the corporate world. Um, at least for that period of time, I couldn't drive, um, couldn't do many of the things that that I would have needed to do had I got a job. So that added more financial pressure, um, and, and more stress if you like. Um, and I, the one thing as part of that investment and development business, we had, we built our own home. And the one thing I said, to my family, my wife, and two sons, was that whatever happened, we will never lose this. This is this is our family home, and we built this, and we will never give it up. Um, but it was, you know, becoming increasingly concerned that we might have to. Um, so I took some advice and said, "Look, I, I, you know, I've promised my family this will happen. How do I protect it? What are my options?" Um, and the the long and short of it was that, you know, by the middle of that year. Uh, the summer of that year 2010 that um, we, we basically let, lost everything else. Um, we managed to keep our home but we lost everything else. I ended up personally bankrupt um, and the back end of that period the, the following six months um, yes there was I was still going through some physical rehab as were my my wife and, and son. but the thing for me was the the kind of um, the the mental pressure. Um, I found it really difficult. Um, ended up in a, in a really kind of dark space myself. Um, I talk a lot about this idea that, you know, it affects everybody. But I think there's this, first of all, there's a stigma about talking about, you know, mental health and the issues that, that we that we have. But more importantly, I think for men, there's a, there's a real thing about this idea of, um, you know, being stronger. And that's, you know, if you ask for help or you say that you're struggling with things like that, then you're showing weakness and we're not supposed to do that.
0: Yeah, I have a a, a very, um, so my ex-husband, he, he struggles massively with his mental health. And when um, our, it's very, I struggle to say the, the breakdown of our marriage was because of it, because it, there was, obviously there was lots of different things, but we have an amazing relationship now. So let's start with that. But he had a massive mental health breakdown. And that was because for years, he had always had mental health issues. But he'd used every coping mechanism known to man. He was a rugby player. He used sport. You know, he he worked. He this, that, the, the other. And in the end, he used women. You know, he had multiple affairs, crescendo of marriage, broken down, crisis centers blah blah you know everything and, and and for him everything had to be utterly destroyed in order for him to be able to you know rise from the ashes so I am acutely aware of how different mental health is handled by men and I think it's institutional institutionalized. I think it's systemic from a lifetime of them always having to be a provider. I don't necessarily understand that because my mum was always the breadwinner and I've always been the breadwinner. So I don't really understand that from a you know a practical yeah. sense. But I do understand that whole um, you know, boys don't cry, yeah. be the man have a set of kahunas, all of that, I just, you know, I just just really struggle with that whole, but but maybe because I feel like I need to be the provider. So I don't really resonate with the whole putting that pressure on yourself, even though I put the pressure on myself.
1: But I think that, you know, there's two things, even when I work with clients now, that I often say to people that, you know, there's intellectually, they can, they can, they can see intellectually that something doesn't make sense, but still believe it. Yeah. And so even though, you know, from a male perspective, we can say, well, yeah, that, that can't possibly make sense because, you know, women make, there's there's lots of women out there who are breadwinners in their family. Um, you know, if I look at my, my own parents, my father was, was the one who worked the most. He was the breadwinner, but my mother was the, the, the one who, um, always instilled our dreams, was always the positive one. The one was the one who wanted to, you know, achieve more, say you could do anything. Um, so, you know, in those um, uh, ideals that that, that wouldn't fit. And yet unconsciously, these yeah. things are there all the time. Um, and what that meant was um, I, I didn't talk to anyone about it. Um, it got progressively worse and it culminated in um, two weeks before Christmas in, in 2010. Um, I got up one morning, uh, I said to my wife, look, um, I need to, I need to go for a walk. I need to Clear my head. I need to think about what we're going to do because we can't go on like this. Um, uh, we need to. We need some plans. Um, so I'm going to go out for a walk. And I left the house that morning. The truth was that I had no intention of coming home. That wasn't the reason I was going out. I left. I went to some woodland near where we lived, um, and I and I made a decision to to take my own life. I felt that my family were in the position they were in because of me. And that they would be better off if I wasn't there. And I also felt I got to a point where I had nothing left to give, that the world would be a better place without me. But something really strange happened that day. Um, and I struggled for a long time to try and even describe it, never mind understand it. Um, but this, the, when I actually made a decision and said, OK, this is what I'm going to do, I was sitting down in, in, uh, in a clearing in some woodland. And when I actually made the decision, it was almost like um, somebody lifted all of those problems off and just said, okay, well, now you've made that decision. I'm just going to give you a few moments to consider that without the pressure of anything else. And I felt really peaceful, really calm. I didn't feel stressed. There was no um, no worry.
0: Do you think that was because you'd reached your rock bottom?
1: I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um. And it, that space gave me enough um, time, and I don't know whether that was just a few seconds or however long it was, to ask some questions of myself. And the one that kind of really struck home the most was, I could have died nine months ago in a car accident. In fact, everybody who was there on that day said, I should, we should have done, we should never have survived that, but we did. Why is that? Why did I survive that? And why am I going through all of this still? For what? There has to be a reason for this. And maybe maybe I'm supposed to find out what that is before I do anything else. And that was what brought me back. It was just a quest to find out some more information about who I am, why I do the things I did, why I don't do some of the things I thought I should do um, and understand a bit more about me. And over the next you know, 11 years till today, effectively, that's what I've done. I spent all all my time invested in developing myself and understanding what makes us tick why we do what we do you know why why we behave in the way we do, what drives that behavior you know what how do we end up with how do some people read a book, take massive action and get massive results and other people read the same book and don't do anything with it and they are get new results what what is that? And as I started to figure some of that out, um, I started to feel loads better about myself and who I was. And and again, I still didn't have this plan or purpose.
0: I was so going to say, did you already know by then that, that you what, what the end goal was that day? Not what the end goal is, but did you know that there was an end goal then?
1: No, still no. No, no I was still looking. I'd gone, I, you know, I'd found... Um, my, my wife had started another business uh, and I was helping air out. I'd gone and worked part-time in sales for a couple of other companies. So I'd, I'd done a few bits and pieces, so, but I still hadn't found, you know, this, what I do now. And then somebody asked me if, um, somebody who knew me said that, um, yeah, it was a different person than I was, you know, five or six years ago. Um, would I mind sharing my story that they felt that somebody wanted to hear it? So I did. That led to somebody else who heard, heard me share my story saying, would you come and talk to uh, one of my business associates? That led to somebody saying, would you come to a network meeting and sharing your story? I've, I spoke at some schools. And from there on in, and people started to come up to you afterwards saying, your story really resonated with me. Do you think you know? I'm struggling with this? Do you think you could help? And I suddenly realized out of all of this, now I understand not only what I'm supposed to do, but why I went through all of those things. Um, And somebody said to me just very recently, you know, that our story is not for us. It's for other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "That, that describes why I did that.
0: Yeah. So you, you emotionally just hit me then because I, just before you were about to say that, I was thinking all of the things that have happened in my life have made me who I am and I love who I am. So I'm happy. But I was also thinking Is there anything we can do to get to people who have mental health issues before they kind of crescendo their whole life? Because I understand, I do understand the need to get to the rock bottom, but it hurts so many people around them that I wonder if there's something that we can do that could really seriously help. Because I'm the one who always goes on about asking for help, asking for help, asking for help. I've never asked anyone for help in my whole entire life. I don't think I have the capability to actually do it. So I'd love to know, even for someone like me, how do you get there? How do you get that through? Because even me saying it to people is ridiculous because I don't do it.
1: But I, I, and I think you're right. But I think, you know, my view is that the more people, who, the more times we share this type of information, the more times we hear other people talk about it. So the reason that we, we as men believe, the things we do is because we've been conditioned that that's the way it is genetically, environmentally, and socially. So in order to change that, we have to change it for the next generation. You know, most of our, most of our identity, our personality is usually confirmed by the time we're seven years old. Yeah. And all we look to do is validate it from there on in. So we've got to start with that next generation. It's our responsibility for the generation below us and and beyond there that they don't have to have the same beliefs that we grew up with. Um, and so the more we share this information, the more we change it at that level, the more we can have an impact. So, you know, my, my wife had an idea four or five years ago that she, she my wife's dyslexic and and she said that one of the things she'd always wanted to do was write a book. Um, And one of the things I said was, so go and write a book. And she was like, oh, mm. I could not possibly do that. You know, how will I, how will I be able to do it? I struggle. And, you know, we did some work together but ultimately that's what she did but the book was more about proving to her than anything else but actually the book was a a, a a bit of a story about um her it's a children's book so it was about being at school and struggling with being able to read like everyone else and those sorts of things when dyslexia wasn't a thing yeah. um, but the story had yeah, a very-
0: interestingly both of my husbands, they both have quite severe dyslexia and neither of them have ever been diagnosed and it's it's affected their lives so massively and it took them until late 30s to even be able to admit to people that they had dyslexia. It's so terrifying.
1: My, my wife will have been um, 51, 52 when she was officially diagnosed. Although yeah. she said she always knew diagnosed. Uh, oh, yeah. Diagnosed
0: the she first she, day i met both of them i said to them that they were dyslexic i yeah, could which, see it from a million miles away
1: it's interesting though cuz she she said that um she had a thing once when she spoke at the school that she said that she she was diagnosed at say 49 um, or 50 she read her first official book what she would call her first read of a book by by in, a, in her early 50s and two years later she'd published her own book um, but but that that was designed um by her, not by me, but but I encouraged her to to give it to schools because the message in there is all about what we're talking about. It's all about you know being able to um be vulnerable enough to say, I need some help. I'm struggling. somebody needs to help me with this. and if it isn't you, you need to point me to someone that can help me. I need to find some way to get through it. Um, and I think that that's an important thing for the next generation is we really need to get through to them that they it isn't you know uh, this isn't a weakness no. you know I, my my two sons i say to them openly they they've both gone on and followed their own dreams but i say to them that you look at the top you know the world class athletes number 1 in their field they're surrounded by people who support them they 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 never not ask for help <laughs> Because even though they're the best in the world at whatever they do, they're still looking to improve. They're still looking to, they're always open to say, I'm struggling with this or can we improve this? Can... And if it's good enough for them, it should be good enough for everybody. And yet everyone else seems to think it's a weakness to to say, I need some help with something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the world's worst at it. I really, really am because I, my whole identity is being about what a strong woman I am and how I don't need anyone for anything and every single time I get better at things it's because I've put myself through the extremities of hardship in order to succeed and I keep going and keep going and the success that I have from ignoring the fact that I should ask for help keeps verifying that I don't need to ask for help even though I know that that's complete nonsense so now I try and surround myself with amazing like business people so that I continue to subconsciously ask for help so that I don't have so many times where I would actually have to ask for help because it's a day-to-day process but that took me years to do like years and We talk, you know, and because I have people around me every single day, I talk about, you know, my private life, my emotional self, my business self, you know, all aspects of my life. So then there isn't those moments of weakness where I'd ever have to turn around and go, I'm struggling, I need help. Because I still, um, even though I think I'm the strongest woman in the whole entire world, I'm still not strong enough to say that.
1: Yeah. And that's and and you know the, the the good thing about that is because you're you're around people all the time and you have an open conversation with them about everything, it becomes far easier just to uh, it's almost like a um an automatic thing that yeah. I get help automatically because I, yeah. I you know I'm sharing this stuff um yeah and if you don't have that circle um then it's really difficult to go out and purposefully say. Actually, I need somebody to to help me with this particular thing, whatever it is. And I talk a lot about this, this difference between um, you know, identity and role, um, because we can we can mask our identity by our role. So yeah. when people used to say to me, Oh, you were really good, you know, in sales, that's that was your 40. And I was like, Yeah, but if you'd asked me at the time, if you'd said to me on a scale of, you know, one to ten, with one being the worst at sales and ten being the best, where would you have put yourself? I'd have said a nine. But if you'd said to me on, from an identity perspective, in terms of who I was with one being the worst version of me and 10 being the best, where would I be? I'd have have said a four or a five. And that's where we have this imposter syndrome. That's where it comes from is this gap, the difference between, because role's all about skills. So people can go into a role and say, well, I'm a four, but I know I can, and on day one in my new job, I'll be a four, but within six months or whatever, I'll be an eight or a nine. can't do that with your identity unless you know what the problem is um and so that's part of the problem is that we you know we we don't ask for help because and i know people who would openly ask for help in their role but definitely won't ask for anything to do with themselves
0: personally yeah yeah i i I, and i think that's 90 percent of humans in my experience yeah because it's just too much of a sign of a weakness but i could talk to you about this till the day I die. Are you on Clubhouse at all? I am. Oh, okay. Well, we need to do things together. We'll talk yes. about this afterwards. Okay. Anyway, um, so where can people find you if they need to find you? Um, and what's so, your signature thing that you deal with? Uh,
1: so the, the thing for me is that um, uh, I focus on those four key things. So procrastination, perfectionism, fear of public speaking, fear of rejection. Um, the um, – Upshot of doing that, the work on those four things usually leads people to develop, you know, significant increases in their self confidence. But that's a byproduct of, of of focusing on those things. So those four things, um, you know, if you're a business owner and entrepreneur, and any of those things um, cause you an issue or you struggle with them. Um, then that's what I, that's, that's my kind of, that's my jam as the Americans would say. And that's kind of what I on. Yeah.
0: Which is, which is why you're never allowed to say that's my jam ever again. (laughs) And I've spoken to your, them two sons and they've agreed with me. (laughs) I say that. One, so of can- in,
1: one of them lives in the states so he would definitely agree with you because he's, like, he's 100% me, yeah. he's 100% committed that his his children when they come along will not be speaking with an American accent <laughs> I
0: bet he is has he gone Is he become more northern the longer he's been there
1: it's funny because we we talk to him and you will you will every now and then he'll say something and it'll kind of I'll, I, we look at each other, my wife and I, and go,
0: trash can.
1: What was that? And he was like, I know, I've just, I've got to stop saying that. But occasionally he'll be sat, you know, we'll be on, particularly now in lockdown, we'll be on Zoom or something, and with his wife, and he'll be talking and she'll say something and he'll say, that's not right. It's, and he'll, he'll correct it with an English accent. So it's quite funny. Um, So yeah, but I keep reminding him that, you know, you do realize that your children are going to speak with an American accent because they, they're going to be surrounded by people.
0: No, that freaks me out. No, it's funny when, when my family watch me on this, they always message me and say, what's with the posh accent? <laughs> I'm like, is, is this not how I speak to you? And apparently it's really not. So sorry, <laughs> all of my family. I think this is how I speak normally. Anyway, we're coming to the end. of. The, oh, where, where can people find you?
1: So social media, um, so Facebook, Instagram, Clubhouse. I'm at Dean Fox Coaching um, or my website, which is uh, deanafox.com.
0: Deanafox.com fab. Okay. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. And I we end all of the podcast with the eight mile moment. So I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about me. I love Eminem and I love the eight mile. And he does all of his rap battles by saying the worst things about him. Skinny is white, his mum lives in a trailer. So that his opponent can't say bad things back to him. So Dean, what are the worst things about you?
1: Worst things about me. ah uh, that's a good question because Oh okay, give me two seconds. Worst things about me. So, worst things about me. Then I've uh, I've got a turn in one eye, That's which is, which is cold. almost being repaired. Uh, I have a very very short um, patience span. Yeah,
0: I don't I, have any.
1: I can be impatient, um, and um, people will say that it's a it's a man thing. Um, but I, I like to focus on something. I don't like to be doing half a dozen things at once. If I do, and someone tries to interrupt me, I get really, really kind of tetchy. So, what I've realised is during lockdown, as an example, um, although my wife you're a grumpy worked, old man work together. Yeah, I've become this grumpy old man, particularly when I'm sat next to my wife in the office, because she'll she'll you know I'll have my headset on doing something. Um, listening or whatever I'm doing, typing away. And she'll say, could you just look at this for me? And I move the headphones, what? She's like, it's all right. It's fine. I'll do it myself.
0: Grumpy sod.
1: (laughs) So I've realized I'm, I'm turning into this grumpy old man.
0: I think all of us have realized stuff about our partners we never knew before this. Because my husband, he's always run his own business. He's always been, you know, kind of out of the house. And I've always run my own business. And I've kind of been in and out. We've never really spent masses of amounts of time during the day together. And I didn't realize how much attention the boy needs because he's just like, what are you do now? What are you do now? What are you do now? Are you doing? I'm like, ah, go away. And they, every time I say, because I always am like, I'm working. And now the kids and my husband walk around the house going, I'm working, I'm working. <laughs> the joys of lockdown anyway thank you so much for being on the podcast and as always if anyone else wants to go on the podcast or you want to sponsor a podcast you can contact us at info at find-surveyors.co.uk and we have an instagram challenge on our uk salon owners group so if you want to win a Kate Spade handbag get over there now or me and Claire are going to have it for ourselves because we love it anyway say goodbye Dean
1: bye it's been a pleasure Always.